Let me begin us with a word of prayer as we dig into Acts chapter 7. Dear Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your faithfulness from age to age, that you've raised up your people to bear witness to the good news of how you keep promises. You keep promises on our behalf, Lord. Even when we are unfaithful, you prove yourself faithful and loving and compassionate. Lord, as we turn to Acts chapter 7, we pray that you give us a deeper appreciation and understanding of your work through history, and that we might be, like Stephen, faithful witnesses to our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, folks. So, um, got the handout there. Uh, let me uh, share it once more in case uh, you didn't get it. We're going to, um, I want to start out with uh, a question. Um related to a, a famous quote or a quotation that goes around, um, attrib usually attributed to George Santayana, who said, and I quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You guys have heard that saying before or some uh, variation of it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, what is that quote saying? And, and do you agree with it? What, how do you understand that? What do you understand that to mean? And do you think it's a, a valid statement that is made there? Any thoughts, comments? The May family agrees with it. <laughs> and how do you guys understand what do you understand it to, to mean um if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past then you don't know not to make those same mistakes again very good yeah and Anne says something similar in the in the chat we don't learn from others mistakes when we ignore the lessons of of history um that not, you know, all, not all the lessons of history are negative and not all the lessons of history are negative right um, so we, we spurn history as well when uh, we don't take advantage of the positive lessons that, that have been learned. Um, I was reading in the, in the newspaper this weekend about a village about Arcadia's size, a rural village in England during a plague in the 1600s, where the pastor, imagine if I were to do something like this, the pastor stood up and told everyone, we're going to quarantine ourselves, just our village. We're not going to go anywhere. We're going to basically just lock it down here um, so that our neighboring villages don't get this plague. And they did that. And uh, two thirds of the town died, but the, but the plague didn't spread to the neighboring villages. Thought, wow, that's quite a lesson there and an inspiring story. Not one um, that uh, is, is for the faint of heart either, but yeah. Anyhow, uh, other, other comments or... Thanks, Pastor. <laughs> right. All right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm gonna put on mute so we can sob quietly in the background here. Thank you. <laughs> Just think of what that sermon was like from the from the pastor. But anyway, uh, as we go to Acts chapter seven, we'll see that this is very much about Stephen is pointing to the history of the Israelites, the, what we call the Old Testament history, and uh, especially the ways in which the people did not learn from it, had, had not learned from it, and uh, to their detriment. And so let's get into Acts chapter 7, and uh, I'm going to start by reading the first um, eight verses or so. And I'm also going to, okay. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day 
and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. All right, so we'll uh, pause there for a second, um, because it starts with the, the speech of Stephen is elicited because the high priest says, are these things so? Basically, give Stephen a chance to speak, to rebut the accusations that have been made against him. So um, to bring up, once again, our, our handout here. Um, number two on your handout, Stephen's speech comes in response to accusations made. So just to go back from last week, the end of chapter six, they secretly instigated men who said, we, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. All right. So there's fundamentally four charges that are leveled there against Stephen. First of all, blasphemy against Moses. Maybe blasphemy is not the right word. Moses is not himself divine, but basically speaking against Moses, blasphemy against God, defaming the temple, and similarly defaming the law. So bottom line, um, Stephen is undermining these fundamental elements of their faith. They're their confidence in God, Moses, the great leader, the temple, the, the great holy place, and then the law, which defined their, their life as the people of God. And so Stephen is responding. He's, he gives a speech in response to these charges that are made against him. It's helpful for us to keep that in the back of our mind as we're then reading and following along. How does he, because he doesn't just do it directly. How, in a kind of indirect way, does he address these charges not to justify himself, but in order to give a faithful witness to what God is actually up to in history. Okay. All right, so number, number three on the handout then, on that first paragraph section on Abraham, Abraham is really the paradigm of faith and possessor of God's promise. So in this first movement, um, Stephen doesn't uh, unpack too much in terms of Abraham's faith, but elsewhere in the scriptures in the New Testament, we know that Abraham is pointed to again and again and again as the one who is the, the paradigm of faith, the one who trusted in God and therefore acted, went out from the land of Ur, even to the point that he was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. But the main thing, the main reason that Stephen invokes Abraham here, other than the fact that he's the, you know, kind of the um, the first their first forefather in the faith, is that it's to Abraham that God's promise came. God made this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, to you and through you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. He gave him the, the promise that, um, as it says in Genesis 15, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. It will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Come into the promised land. And God has made this, makes this promise to Abraham. And so he serves a, a pivotal role in their history as they think about what does it mean for them to be a people who have received this promise from God and how they are to, to live into it. Um, all right, pause there real quick. Um, are there questions or comments, reflections on the, the place of Abraham in this story? Oh, I see a hand from Patrice. Are you just practicing or do you have a question for, for the group here? I'll, I'll I guess I'm practicing. Oh. You're just practicing, <laughs> right. I'm learning, I'm not tech savvy yet, but I'm getting better. That's all right, I'll lower your hand there. Um, okay, any other questions, comments about Abraham? Yeah, go ahead, Pete. Oh, let me unmute you there. Go ahead, go again. Oh, okay, thanks. Well, I, I um, you know, kind of bouncing off your original question, uh, failing to learn from history. I, I think that's why you uh, are talking about Stephen's history lesson. You yeah. Know, I, I, we did tune into your uh, service this morning, and I kind of sympathized with the disciples there because they, too, apparently, failed to learn from history. Very much so. Yeah, they, it's like it was there in plain sight, but it's one of those things where um, you see it in retrospect. And we, we've had these experiences in our own lives. And anytime yeah. you read a good novel, it works that way, like a good mystery novel. 
where, you know, you, you could find out who was, who was the killer. It was right, right there all along, but you just didn't see it. Right. And um, there's something similar happening when it comes to the scriptures. Like once you see it, it's obvious, it's all over the place in the old Testament. But I think we can be, um, you know, compassionate toward those disciples on the way to Emmaus um, and even to, to Stephen's hearers. They missed it. They didn't see it. And really, nobody did. They didn't anticipate it. Okay, let's continue on um, in Acts 7, uh, picking up with verse 9 now. Sorry, Pastor, a question, but well, go ahead. What, what he's saying so far is nothing new, right? I mean, he's, I mean, he's just recounting like basic Jewish history yes. here. He's, no one's like, oh, what? But that didn't happen. I mean, like, he's just, which is kind of an interesting move when you're on trial. Yep. Like, I mean, he's, this is a long argument. He's, this is a bit, this is not a short get to the point. This right. is like, I'm going I'm to lay the ground here for right. like a bunch of verses here, right? I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. Stephen, Stephen is a painter, not a pointer, as they say. <laughs> you know, he, he's kind of got a long wind up here as he's prepared to really bring it home, as we'll see he does at the end. But very much, as you say, this is something, what he's laying out is kind of like Bible 101 for, um, especially for um, Jewish religious leaders, people who know their stuff. When um, this is being invoked by, by Stephen here, he's not saying things that they are something like, oh yeah, wait a second, what about this guy, Abraham? But what's going to be so uh, incisive about it is the application that he makes from the story and the way that he kind of weaves it together as we'll see that. He's sort of getting them not actually on his side, but he's saying stuff that they all agree with. Yes, exactly. Story. Yep. That's right. right. Okay. So they, they all, they all agree with it thus far. They, um, there's not, nothing controversial to this point. Good. Okay. So he goes on in verse nine and the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Okay, so here again, um, you're like, okay, so Joseph is continuing his, his survey of the Old Testament, his overview of, of Old Testament scripture but we're getting a clearer picture of what he is up to as he includes Joseph and the way that he tells Joseph's story um, or this, you know, this element of Joseph's story and shares it in his speech. So um, number four on your handout, Joseph is paradigm is paradigm of righteous victim and vindicated ruler. Okay. He's the paradigm of the righteous victim and vindicated ruler. And again, this was a well-established perspective um, among the religious leaders, among, among Jewish people at the time of Jesus. Joseph was looked to as, in many ways, paradigmatic for their experience as the people of God, insofar as they were still under oppression, they were in slavery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Joseph was the paradigm of that, because Joseph was, um, you know, in, an innocent um, victim, a righteous victim, where, you know, from Genesis 37, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. You guys know the story. Joseph gets thrown into a well, gets pulled out of a well, goes into slavery, um, gets sold as a slave to Egypt, ends up in prison, almost loses his life. But then he ends up ascending to this place where he's basically second in command of the whole uh, kingdom of Egypt. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And so he goes from being the, the righteous sufferer to instead being the vindicated ruler. And 
you know, there's a beautiful ending to the story. Joseph's brothers come to him and then, um, you know, they're, they're frightened. They're um, quivering, wondering what's going to happen to them. But it says, Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. All right. So, um, hey, Yolan, welcome. Um, let me just pause there. And I've lost my screen. You've lost your screen. Hello. Oh, like all yep. of this. Um, all it says is Zoom. Yeah. Uh, not sure, but can, as long as you can still hear us, that's the that's the main thing. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, so. The when you see uh, Stephen incorporating this part with Joseph's story, you can start to see the writing on the wall, right? You, you get a feel for where he's going with this. How would you how would you sum that up? What what's kind of the impression you think that Stephen is starting to to point to? Again, for his hearers, maybe they don't quite know where he's going yet. But as we're listening to this, how do you think he's trying to to craft this? this narrative, this sermon, as it were. Yeah, Carla, I'll unmute you. Go ahead. Whoops. Uh, Carla, it's not letting me unmute you. I think that he's trying to get them to see and convict themselves yeah. by him telling this narrative that they see where they fit into the story. Yeah. They are then convicted themselves right. of their role. Yeah, that's that's very well put. They see where they... I'm done. Okay, very good. They see where they fit into the story. That's an important way of, of putting it, is that... Um, Good, Pete. Welcome back. I'm glad you got it worked out. <laughs> they, they see where they fit into the story and how they uh, can be convicted by this as well. Um, I see another hand from uh, Tom and Sarah. Go ahead. Hi. Hey, Tom. I think, I think what we see here is bringing home the lesson that man's ways aren't God's ways. Right. Everybody gets together and thinks they have it figured out. Right. But God has another plan. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to them, um, you think of Joseph and uh, Joseph's brothers, um, and they, they clearly had a plan this, that they were going to uh, uh, bring it out um, on Joseph. Um, but Joseph's words are so beautiful. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. Our ways are not God's ways. And God's able to, um, you think of Romans 8.28, he works all things together for the good. He's able to invert our our plans, even that evil, and use it uh, with his purposes. Uh, go ahead, Connie and Hans. Hans, go ahead. Is he making a direct comparison with Christ to uh, Joseph? Joseph, both I think, being vindicated rulers. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think he um, Stephen doesn't make it explicitly, but I think he wants us to go there for sure. And Joseph. You know, Joseph gets a lot of, uh, he gets he gets a lot of attention in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, it's something like 15 chapters are devoted to his story. And so this was a very well-known and beloved story among Jews. And so um, for him to be connecting with that, um, it would kind of be like, you know, among, among Lutherans to hear some, you know, we're told some story about Luther or about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, um, some uh, example of, of from our tradition. And immediately it would put us in a, a mood where we would be receptive and say, okay, yeah, we want, we want to hear this. But that's why the, the turn that he's going to take becomes all the more impactful. Good. Yeah, Pete. So uh, um, Stephen's speech though, it comes as a result of, uh, answering the question, are these things so? And these things are these blasphemous, right. uh, false witnesses. Right. Uh, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
Right. And so he wants to show them why these things are not so. And the way that he's doing it is to demonstrate, in fact, this is your history. But again, he does it in a roundabout way. And as Ann points out, he's getting ready to twist the knife. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. Good. Okay, let's, let's continue on then to the, the next um, portion of it. He continues, verse 17. But as the time of, pro of the promise drew near, again, calling back to with Abraham and the promise that God had made to his people, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. This is the story of Exodus, right? He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Okay, so again, this Stephen's doing a who's who of the history of, of Israel. We started with Abraham, then we've got Joseph, and now we've got Moses. And there's going to be more to say about Moses. Um, but first thing to, to draw attention to, um, just looking at the handout again here, number five on your handout, is Moses is the paradigm of the miracle child turned rejected advocate. Okay, again, looking at this and, and anticipating where he's going to go with Jesus, you've got Moses who has this miraculous birth. Or his birth isn't so much miraculous, but the circumstances of his childhood right? He gets miraculously rescued rather than being killed, and he's brought up, and he turns into this advocate for his people. He goes in order to, um, to help his own brethren, and what happens to him? He's thrust aside and forced to become um, a sojourner, okay? So this is picking up on several New Testament themes. Um, it says in Hebrews 11, a great chapter of, of uh, the Hall of Faith, it's sometimes called, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Stephen makes the same point about Moses, who apparently was a very handsome child. He was beautiful. He's <laughs> a, a very cute kid. I think that we can see that, though, as not just a, referring to his physical appearance, but as Stephen says, he was beautiful in God's sight because of the work that God was going to work through him. But I think even more to the point here, as John says in John chapter 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, Jesus comes to his brethren in order to bring them deliverance, just as Moses of old had done. And just as it happened with Moses, where he was thrust aside, so also it's going to be the case with Jesus. This is where Joseph is, is going with this. Um, apart from that, though, why else does um, uh, Stephen want to include this section on Moses? Why else would it be advantageous or strategic for him to have this, this section on, on Moses, beyond the fact that he's uh, you know, he, uh, born under miraculous circumstances? Um, and, you know, was rejected, spurned by his, his brethren. Yeah, Pete. Yeah, so, well, in one sense, it's uh, um, the, the same thing could be said of Joseph, you know, thrust aside. Sure, right. by his brothers. And yeah. honestly, you could back up and say the same thing, I think, of uh, Abraham, because if, if they were looking to Abraham to be their salvation, you know, 
Sure. Not in an unkind way, but he was certainly thrust aside by the fact that he had Isaac, who had Jacob, who yeah. had Joseph. Right. You know? So, I mean, there's that, there's that theme that's running through this as well. Yes. There's definitely a pattern that is uh, unfolding through this. Good. Other thoughts? Why Stephen would want to include Moses at this point or make it a point to include him and speak in such glowing terms of him as this beautiful child? Think back to the accusations that were made, that were leveled against Stephen at the outset, right? Uh, we've got a hand from uh, the Danke household. Yeah, he, one of the accusations was the law, and right. Moses is the law. He, he's the one that put down you know, the commandments coming up to Mount Sinai and all that kind of stuff. And yes, brought, and, and brought, brought the law down from the mountain. That's right. He brought down the law. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, um, going back to uh, chapter six, verse 11, you notice it said they, again, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Okay. So that this was part of one of the, the basic charges. Indeed, the first charge that's made against Stephen is that he's speaking against Moses. And so, you know, Stephen definitely involves Moses here and shows, no, I, it's not that I have anything against Moses here, all right? I, I recognize um, the miraculous circumstances around um, his, his upbringing and that he was um, God's servant and his instrument. Um, so let's go on from there because he's, he's got more to say about Moses picking up in verse 30. And I realize I'm moving kind of quickly here, but I want to get um, through the whole sermon where we get to the, the payoff. But stop me anywhere along the way. You've got uh, other questions or comments. Now, when 40 years had passed, and notice this recurring thing with 40, right? This is a, a common, um, well, it's commonly pointed out that this is a really key number in the, uh, in the scriptures. Of course, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Um, 40, Moses was 40 years old when he was called by, by the Lord. And it was 40 year, or uh, he was 40 years old when he fled um, from Egypt. And then 40 years later, he was 80 when he was called. Okay. So if you're an 80 year old and you're thinking, you know what, nothing interesting can happen to me still, you might be called to lead God's people out of slavery. So don't, uh, don't, don't think that there's nothing left ahead of you. All right, so 40 years had passed. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Okay, so the burning bush and the, the call of Moses by the Lord. Then it goes on, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, no well, uh, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. All right, you with me so far? We've got more of Moses' story here, and returning once again um, to our handout and to the, the story of Moses. Moses is not only the paradigm of the miracle child turned rejected advocate, but also number six on your handout, 
paradigm of the wonder working prophet. So this was probably what we think of with Moses as much as anything is the, how he was the, the instrument of the plagues that were leveled against Egypt, the signs and wonders that were given there, the deliverance of the, the people out of slavery. And we might not typically associate uh, Moses with the prophets. We think of him as kind of in his own class, um, but he's very much regarded as a prophet um, among the, the Israelites. And in particular, because of this passage from Deuteronomy 18, I've got half of it on this page and then it goes on. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. Raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. Uh, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Stephen uh, invokes this uh, prophecy from the Old Testament, from the mouth of Moses himself. Uh, in fact, it comes up in, uh, in John's gospel as well, from John the Baptist. People wondering, is, is he the prophet? When they spoke of the prophet, this was what they were referring to. This prophecy made by Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18. Stephen alludes to this because he, again, is driving us back to Jesus, saying, this is the prophet. He is the one who's doing these signs and wonders. And just as an aside, does that passage from Deuteronomy and, and God's injunction there, listen to him, does that make you think of any other events or stories in the Gospels? When, um, when we hear that passage from Deuteronomy, does that call to mind any other um, famous stories from, from the, uh, the Gospels? Patrice, you've got your hand up. Well, I just thought of the baptism at yeah. the River Jordan. That's right. That's Here right. This is, this is the word that the Father speaks over Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And you remember it, it happens again at the transfiguration, almost verbatim. But there's that great moment when Peter is, is so excited. Lord, it's so good to be here. You know, uh, can we build you a tent? We'll do one for Moses and Elijah too. And then God interrupts. It says, while he was still speaking, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop speaking listen to him. So that's significant. It's not just calling Simon to account, be quiet, um, but also and even more so, it's evoking that prophecy made by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, that there's another prophet to come. That prophet is our Lord Jesus. Okay. So Stephen is weaving all of this together and his wind up, he's, he's starting to zero in. And now He's, he has brought up all of these great pillars of Israel's history, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. But now he's going to turn from these great people, their holy people, to the holy place, the temple, the heart and soul of their life as the people of God. So look at verse 44 now. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, so what's the, what's the impression that you get from Stephen here and his, his attitude toward the temple? What is he having to say about, about the temple here? And again, recall that one of the charges that was brought against him back at the end of chapter 6, not only is he speaking blasphemy against Moses and against God, but also they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, referring to, referring to the temple. But what's Stephen's attitude here? Yeah, Anne. Well, um, that it's not all about the temple. Like they're not 
they're not meant to be worshiping the temple. They're meant to be worshiping their God. And the temple is a thing for man. Right. To worship. It's for, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, maybe you could say it this way. The Sabbath was made for man. Yes. Not man for the Sabbath. Right. The temple was made as a place to worship God. Right. And, um, not to be worshiped as God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I think that's very well put. As the temple, they had developed an idolatrous relationship to the temple, where they had regarded that as the be-all, end-all. And Stephen is, is really cutting here, because you almost get the impression that he's saying, look, the tabernacle, the, that tent, that kind of temporary worship space, was good enough. And you guys, you pushed on, and you built the temple, and God blessed it. But if you think that the temple is the main thing, you have missed it. And this was a theme already in the prophets. Jeremiah um, spoke against the, the people's attitude toward the temple. The fact that there was the exile and the destruction of the temple shows that the people had had an idolatrous relationship to it. They had to rebuild the whole thing because God had uh, destroyed it through other instruments that he had used. So that uh, number seven on your handout here, the temple is monumental evidence of misguided worship. See, it, the, the temple is, is uh, proof positive that their worship becomes misguided. And ironically, Solomon had, had already kind of pointed to how this would be possible in his dedication of the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8. He says rhetorically, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Chew on that one for a minute. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Okay. Solomon is saying what Isaiah is going to repeat in the words that, that uh, Stephen quoted from. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. How could they build anything that's going to, to hold him? And along these lines, Psalm 51, that great psalm, uh, penitential psalm. David says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So um, David's point in the psalm, Stephen's point here, is, is not that uh, the temple was bad or that the sacrifices were bad per se, but it's how they became used and abused. Um, Anne points out in the, in the chat, Israel wants to replace God with all kinds of things, golden calf, earthly king, temple. This is another rejection, Pete points out, this time by the chief priests, um, again and again and again. Um, but I want to step aside there for just a second and come more to our contemporary time and say, you know, the, so the temple became a source of idolatry for the, the people of old. How can we, as modern believers become tempted in a similar sort of way. Of course, we don't have, have the temple or the sacrificial system, but what are some analogies that you might draw of ways that um, we can be tempted or that uh, we could have a misguided kind of, of worship or faith in our, in our own day? Do you see that happening anywhere? Or do you, um, can you detect any kind of temptations that, that Christians might have? Yeah, Anne, go ahead. Uh, at the risk of stirring up our own little pot here at, at, in Arcadia, um, I, I mean, I see a lot of, I, this is what the worship wars are all about, right? Sure. Um, liturgy versus contemporary or, you know, kind of like that false dichotomy of, oh, we're going to follow what the hymnal says, or, oh, no, we're just going to write something new. Right. Um, and just getting wrapped up in that instead of, um, seeing that it's a tool. Yeah, exactly. Not, not worshiping the thing itself, whether it be, um, liturgy, whether it be a certain kind of instrumentation, all these kinds of things. Um, the Duns point out Notre Dame cathedral. Ooh, wow. Yeah. I mean, where here you have this beautiful building 
and the French government, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And the French government wanted to rebuild it, but not necessarily as a place of worship, but just as a, you know, a kind of monument, a great cultural icon. Mm-hmm. But if, if that's all it is, we're totally missing the point. Um, I mean, we could say something similar with our beautiful church here. And, you know, we had conversations after the Notre Dame Cathedral burnt down and uh, we talked about our church here. Like if we were to have a fire, I hate to say it, folks, that our building would be going up pretty quickly. It's all wood in there, right? And would we be able to survive? Would the church still exist? Can we worship God? Yes, 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 of course, we know that. That's not to say we want to see the building go down by any means. It's a beloved place of worship, but it's recognizing the building is not, is not the thing. Um, Pete, Pete comments, form over function seems to get in the way in this particular controversy, however misguided it may be. In other words, we lose sight of the why, the purpose, um, and just focus on the what, you know, that, that form. Um, and so this, is, this was what the Israelites of old were doing, just focusing on the sacrifices, just focusing on the temple, losing sight of why did God institute those things. It was for communion with him, faith in him. Um, so, yeah, Chip. Um, I used the function, the raise the hand function. Good, nice work. Um, I, I think it's, it's easy to look at the, the Israelites and say how foolish they, they were. Like the golden calf example always seems like so foolhardy. Like he was gone for like five minutes and they're building the golden calf. That's right. what it feels like, right? And, but it's, it's, and it's, it, I think it's easy in the abstract to say, don't worry about the building. Don't worry about the, the form. It's really just worshiping God. But now at a time when we are kind of stripped of our form, yes, mm. you know, I am like this idea that I am going to just connect with, like, I don't need any inner, inner, inner intermediaries. I just, between me and God, right. I'm finding, um, fall short in the sense, not that God falls short in those, right. in those moments, but like, I need the people of God and I, I don't know if I need it, but I I do would like a structure and a yeah. building and a place to go to gather. Yes. You know, and I do like the music that involves more than just the May family singing. No offense, May May family. <laughs> you know, and so I mean those can be idols, but I think we also made solid short like the the incarnational aspect of being together. And yeah. I, I I guess I know this isn't the whole point of the whole Stephen thing, so it's another thing. But as we debate the needing church or not, or or not needing church, like I'm tired of worshiping in my family room. <laughs> you know. No, I I agree wholeheartedly, and I think it does give us a little more sympathy um, when the the Israelites were well, especially during their time of exile, and when they were lamenting the fact that they they were missing out on their place of worship. And they continued to face Jerusalem when they prayed. You know, it talks about Daniel facing Jerusalem and um, awaiting that time when they could be regathered there. They knew that God was still with them wherever they went. But there's, there's something about having that locatedness. And God is a locatedness, a lo- locating God. He puts himself in a place where people can meet with him. Uh, Ann, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that God himself instructed Israel and like the shape of worship would take. Yeah. Like he doesn't just be like, okay, well you can all just meet me in your own way and, right. you know, go and take a hike and be by yourself and pray. But right. he, he's very, he's, he gives them something like, Hey, yeah. this is how you can do it. This is how we can meet. Yep. He, he is an orderly God and um, he does establish those structures. And I think the big, the, um, the big point that Stephen would drive home for us is just um, that not, uh, not to abuse them, not to make them, not to make them idols, to have them be in their, in their proper place. Pete, you had your hand up. Oh, let me un, un, unmute you there, Pete. Sorry. Do start I, again. Go ahead. Do I, am I supposed to unmute myself? I don't know. No, that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, no, I, again, hearkening back to service this morning, uh, you referenced the altar and, and said, when we finally do get back together here, right. Um, uh, will we not be saying, did our hearts not burn within us? Yeah. You know, the, the, the very words that uh, the disciples spoke uh, about that encounter with Jesus. And, right. and here we are exiled, right. <laughs> honestly. Um, I, I, I agree with Chip. I can't wait to get back. Right. But 
this this hiatus is really driving that spirit within me yeah um very much so no i mean i i think that god is is forging in us a, a deeper faith in this and oh um you know uh chip and i had a uh a conversation with another um, pastor this week, and he made a point that I, I that really resonated with me, where he said, um, with his church, they're really um, trying to have their the things that they're offering not be too similar to their normal worship. The reason being because we want to keep that hunger alive for the way that things are of gathering together as the people of God and worshiping Him, so that everything we're doing right now is a stopgap and it shouldn't be regarded as anything more than that. Like this is not, this is not the ideal. And um, thankfully the Lord's able to sustain us through it, but uh, we shouldn't get too, we shouldn't get too used to it. So I'm talking to you guys. Don't get too used to this. See, I'm not going to continue these zoom Bible studies when we're able to gather again. <laughs> this, this things, goodness gracious. I'm, I'm grateful for it, but uh, yeah, it's not the ideal. All right. If you'll hang with me for just a few more minutes, I want to, um, Kind of land the plane here. Oh, Yolan had a hand up though. Oh, Yolan, do you got? Uh, let me unmute you there, Yolan. Go ahead. All right. I was just going to say it's interesting that all of a sudden Zoom is on the horizon here, and uh, how God made way for that and for us to worship. It's true, He did, and we're grateful for it that He He's provided us these means by which we're stay, still able to have a steady diet from His Word. And yes. uh, I, I don't, so I certainly don't want to uh, come off as, as ungrateful for that by any means. Uh, it's a, a remarkable thing. We live in a, quite a time. Daniel was not able to, you know, Skype in or Zoom in <laughs> with the other exiles at <laughs> <in> that time. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, turn your mic on, you know. Um, <laughs> anyhow. <Unmute him>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A couple more. Uh, let, let's uh, finish Stephen's speech. So, um, so Stephen um, concludes, verse 51. <laughs> you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is like Ann said before, Stephen is twisting the knife. He's saying, okay, so you're, 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 you're claiming that I'm speaking against the law, but you guys are the ones who had the law and you were not keeping it. And in fact, this is your story, Israel, is that you are over and over and over again, God is faithful and you are faithless. He keeps his promises, and you break your promises over and over and over again. So number, uh, number eight on your handout there, it's the age-old story, God's faithfulness, Israel's faithlessness. And you read your Old Testament. The word stiff-necked, I looked this up, the word stiff-necked comes up over 20 times in the Old Testament. And the idea is, if, if you're not familiar with it, is just that stubbornness, right? Just like an animal that's going to, eh, eh, eh. occasionally my dog will be this way. Those of you who know Juno, you won't believe this. She's the greatest dog in the world. But sometimes even Juno will get stiff-necked and refuse to come along. You know, come on, come on. Um, but this was the, the story of the Israelites over and again. And uh, you think of something like Psalm 106, which tells, tells this story. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And again, uh, Isaiah 63, just that last sentence. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. This is uh, just recurring again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. This is the story. And as Stephen is, is pointing out to them, look, guys, you have always been rebellious. You've always been uh, 
fighting against the Lord. And now it's just, it's uh, culminated in your rejection of the, of the Messiah. And uh, Patrice asks, stiff-necked also refusing to turn away, repent. Yes, absolutely. And just as a side note, this is one of the verses that we would point to as a, well, proof text, for lack of a better term, um, that when it comes to free will, um, we are not able to freely choose God. We say in the catechism, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Christ Jesus, my Lord, or come to him. Okay. Our sinful human nature is always going to turn away from God. Um, but some people then make the, the next step and they say, and actually we're not even, um, even our, our sin and everything, um, that that's not our responsibility also. I mean, we're just so um, enslaved that we can't be held responsible for our, even our, our evil deeds. And passages like this make it clear, no, we're not able to choose God, but make no mistake, we are, we are able to choose against God, and we do so over and over again. So um, that would get us down a whole nother path, talking about predestination and so forth. I don't want to go there right now, but just to, to draw that atten attention to that, that Stephen is saying, look, this is your own fault. Um, Anne says in the chat, to think that Stephen is wrong was to believe that they had solved their own problem by themselves, perhaps by keeping the law, right? And Pete uh, also points out, never saw the Holy Spirit in that context in, in Isaiah. This is study worthy for sure, right? Holy Spirit doesn't show up for the first time in the New Testament. Um, he's more subtle and in the background in the Old Testament, but he's there all along. All right, so... Um, what have we learned from this sermon of, of Stephen? And next week, we'll get into the response that then happens um, and what, what they do to Stephen. But here you have Stephen is drawing our attention to the fact that lastly on your handout, number nine, Jesus and his body, the church, is the true heir to the promises to Israel. The Israelites, the Jewish leaders, they had rejected God's promises and what he had done for them um, as Paul says in Romans 10, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, <clears throat> for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It was all pointing to Jesus all along the way. And Stephen is saying, look, guys, you missed it. Uh, as we wrap up here today, you know, Stephen gives this powerful witness to the gospel in this passage. Is there anything that we can learn from his approach? As we've, we've heard him give this, this defense of the message of, of Christ, um, is there anything that we can learn from, from his approach? I mean, you might say, well, I'm not sure how effective it is to call people stiff-necked and to be that forward with them, although maybe sometimes it's necessary. But is there anything that stands out to you that, that we could take away uh, from Stephen, from this example, and in, in our witness, in our um, defense of, of the gospel. I've got a couple of thoughts, but before I give mine, I want to see if any of you guys have um, anything that you'd like that stands out for you um, on this point. Dad keeps having his hand up. I think he's waving at somebody. Pete, do you have something that I, uh, I, I was waving? I, I'm, I'm, but I am still. I, I can't get a practical app out of it, um, but. Uh, it's, I guess, just an observation that actually um, Stephen's whole speech agrees with that last charge. Um, yeah. Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Right. So like, right. Right. I mean, they were, there was some, in a sense, there was some validity to their accusations. Um, they, they walked right into it. They, yes, right. That's right. <laughs> um, so one, one point that I would draw from this um, gets back to something that Chip had said um, earlier on, that S Stephen starts from common ground. So he starts from, from where they're at and to um, fam a familiar um, uh, characters from the, from the Bible, places that they, they already know and that they are familiar with. And I think that this is always a helpful point of departure for us when we're thinking about, you know, giving witness, um, whether it be with um, whether it be to, to fellow Christians, whether it be to people who are outside of 
of that worldview to see are there touch points that we can find? Are there points of common ground that we can share from um, in terms of, of sharing this good news? Whether it be um, with a, a sense of, you know, in our contemporary culture, people having this deep uh, passion for justice, right? We talk about social justice warriors and so forth and the ways that those things go wrong. But there's something deep within humanity that longs for justice. We can tap into that and point to that and say, you know where that comes from? God is a God of, of justice. Or whether it be from folks who have a real passion for creation and the care of creation. Many times they'll just call it the environment, right? But we'd say, you know, who created the environment? And it's good for us to care about creation, to recognize that there is a creator and that he doesn't want to see it abused. Uh, there's so many different directions that can go. But I think Stephen um, shows us it's helpful to start with common ground, right? Um, <clears throat> secondly, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, be not quick to launch to the law. Yeah, right. Yeah, Which don't. Stephen was not i mean he did launch the law let's face it that those yeah oh my gosh but this you know i think a second thing but that we could right. we could point out here is he uses indirection right he uses that long wind up like we said he paints it and uh i think that's helpful to the extent that we're able to do that and again you know this there's real artistry here so we might not always be able to do this in casual conversation but in as much as we're able well it's like telling a joke right the, the whole key to telling a joke is the wind-up, to pull somebody in and then to pull the rug out from under them, you know? And uh, it seems strange to say, well, you know, sharing the gospel or being witnesses means uh, we need to be, you know, telling a joke. But if it's that same kind of strategy of how can I pull you in before, uh, so that I get you listening before I pull the rug out from under you, as it were. Um, the Duns point out good insights for conversations for Muslims believe in most of the prophets. That's right. If you're talking with a Jewish person or a Muslim uh, person, um, there's, there is some real commonality there. Um, sometimes, you know, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, they're all referred to as the Abrahamic religions. Start from that point of departure before going into some of the places where we depart from one another. And um, Patrice points out, just as Paul did, as he traveled and shared the gospel. That's right. And we'll see that um, in a, a couple of weeks. I'll be preaching on that great passage from Acts 17, where Paul does this really well. Anne, you've got your hand up. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we all know what happens to Stephen, but I think that's an indicator of the success of his message. And we'll probably talk about that more later. Yeah. But, like, he was – he successfully – communicated what he needed to communicate and that is the reason why he had to know that this was going to happen yeah yep that's right um the maze point out he didn't worry about self-preservation i think that's spot on he told the truth um knowing that there was going to be uh consequences to it but still he he did it unabashedly and and unaf unafraid and i think if we could just say one one last thing to take away from this as at the end of the day what do we do is we tell the story. I mean, Stephen just tells the story and, uh, you know, lets them read between the lines. He brings it home at the end in a very, as we say, a very pointed way. But I think for us as Christians, when, when it comes to telling witness, share, sharing witness, we don't always have to be um, clever or, you know, come up with, with um, perfect ways to do this. We just tell the story. And here, something like the Apostles' Creed is a great help for us. You know, the creed is just telling the story in a nutshell form. You know, what, what, do you, what do you Christians believe? Well, I believe that we have a God who is the Father, who's the maker of heaven and earth, and that he sent his son. And, you know, just to, to walk through that is a, um, a beautiful and powerful thing in its own right. I'll give a quick plug here, and I think I'm going to have more to say about this. Um, but this uh, um, mini-series, uh, really what it is, called The Chosen, which is uh, available right now on YouTube and elsewhere online. Um, I know the Mays have seen this. Have any others of you seen this or heard about this yet? The Chosen? You guys, you gotta check this out. Um, it is really it stupendous. Um, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, if you search for The Chosen, and uh, it's an eight-episode miniseries. Um, they wanna do uh, more as well, 
but it, it focuses on, on the disciples, on their backstories, and on Jesus calling them. And it's super well done um, to the point that I'm, I think I'm thinking about doing a, um, um, maybe do like a Bible study or do some kind of reflection on it to uh, tune in about it because it's just, uh, it's really, really good. Um, so yeah, just call, search for the, the chosen. I think there's also an app that you can just put on your iPad or something um, and watch it that way, but uh, highly, highly recommended. All right. Guys, I went long here today, but I'm very grateful for your participation and uh, your attention. This has been a great study. And next week, we'll continue with the, what becomes of Stephen. And it's, it'll start turning to the next great character of the book of Acts, Saul. So thank you, guys. God bless you. And hope to see you again soon. Take care.